Rav Shimon Schwab, who was the Rav in Washington Heights, a great spokesperson for Klal Yisrael, very eloquent and brilliant, he says an amazing vart. He says the following. In 1492, we know that there was the edict of expulsion from Spain. The king and queen, Ferdinand and Isabella, were the king and queen of Spain, and they were Risham Gemurim. They wanted the Jewish people out. They wanted one Jew to stay, actually. Anyone know who that was? The Abarbanel. The Abarbanel was the brilliant financial advisor to them, and they were sort of stuck because they wanted to kick all the Jews out, but they liked him. He was the court Jew that they liked. And he said, no, if you're kicking them all out, then I'm going to go also. He offered them a tremendous amount of money to try to undo this edict. But they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't budge, and they evicted all of the Jews. They evicted the Jews out of Spain, and, um, and it was a tragedy of tragedies, and, uh, and many of them stayed, and they became Moranos, and uh, some of them were killed at the stake. But whatever it was, it was a terrible time in Jewish history. It's probably one of the darkest moments in Jewish history because Spain at that time, up until that point, was like America. It was the golden age. You had, you had people, Rishinim, you know, that were really able to thrive in this great climate of Spain. You had the great poets and the great Rishinim, you know, people that were, a lot of the Svarim that we use today were from that, that glory glorious period in Spanish history, and then it all came to a screeching halt in 1492. What else do we know about the year 1492? When I was a little kid, we used to have a poem. In 1492, Columbus was a Jew. That was what, that was the Messiah that I had when I was a little kid. Columbus was set, set sail by the order of Isabella and Ferdinand at the same time, same exact year that we were kicked out of Spain, Isabella and Ferdinand made a, uh, a special um, disco- exploration. They funded it. They were the patrons to get Christopher Columbus to discover the New World. And he thought he was going somewhere else. He ended up in America. Anyway, but because of that, because of that period in history, it was the darkest moment in time in Jewish history up until that point. But it was also a time that Christopher Columbus set sail for America... He found this country, and eventually it became the United States of America after a couple of hundred years from there. But this was the land that would ultimately shelter the Jewish people that were kicked out of Spain. The Jews were sent out of Spain at the same exact moment, with his great mercy on us, already was setting the table for a future Gaishan in America so that after all of the Gilgulim, after all of the Goliaths, after all of the, the, the waves of different Jewish migration to Russia, to Poland, to Portugal, to uh, Lisbon, to, to all of, these, uh, to all of the, the, the various places in the world that would ultimately again expel Jews, but America was already being founded at that same time, this is Cesar of Schwab, is the way HaKadosh Baruch Hu operated the world. He, yes, he basically created a tremendous makkah for Klal Yisrael, but at the very same time he was concocting a refuah. 
He was making refuah for Klal Yisrael that would eventually provide the very shelter that they needed at that point, but albeit a couple of centuries down the road. So America is really a Gaishan that Klal Yisrael would eventually come to need and to enjoy. Now, we have a, a very important Messiah. We have a tradition from Reb Chaim Velazhner. Reb Chaim Velazhner was, of course, the Talmud Muvuk of the Vilna Gain. So, in the yeshiva world, if you hear anything from Reb Chaim Velazhner, it's like, it's the gold standard. It, it, there's nothing, you can't say anything that would be, you know, more impressive than quoting Reb Chaim Velazhner in the Lithuanian yeshiva world, because he represents the Messiah. He was the, you know, the tradition that we have from the Beis Medrash of the Vilna Gain came through Reb Chaim Velazhner. And Reb Chaim Velazhner, who basically lived at the same time as the founding of America, right? The Vilna Gain was Nifter in what year? Anyone know? 1797. 1797 was approximately, right, America was founded in 1776. So the Vilna Gain was very much aware of the founding of the United States of America. Reb Chaim Velazhner was living in the same time. And he had a Kabbalah, Mustama from the Vilna Gain that there is going to be in this Gullus, in the Gullus that we're currently in, this, this 2,000-year seemingly unending Gullus, there is going to be 10 stancias, 10 stations, 10 way stations of this Gullus, whatever they are. We're not going to go through all of them, but if you would be a, a student of history and you would go through, there is, there is going to be 10 stations in this Gullus before Mashiach comes. And he says the last station in Gullus was what? America. America. America was going to be the last station in Gullus. So America, again, plays a very pivotal role in Jewish history. This isn't just another station in Gullus. This isn't just another migration and then we're going somewhere else and another place and another place. This is it. This is the last stop. The last stop is America. And then Mashiach is going to come. It's a very important a piece of Messiah to have when we're thinking and when we're talking about the United States of America. Because it wasn't a, uh, you know, this is not an anomaly in Jewish history. It's a pivotal player in Jewish history, the United States of America. What I want to do now is to talk about our founding fathers. I'm not talking about the founding fathers of America, George Washington and all the, the people that wrote the Constitution and signed, signed the, the documents and uh, Jefferson and uh, Adams and all. Those are the founding fathers of America. But Claudia Yisrael has our own founding fathers of, of Orthodox Jewry in America. Orthodox Jewry in America that today is a result all of the terror that we have in America, look at what's going on here, just in this very shul. Besides for having a, such a, a prominent Rav and a prominent Kehillah, but just on a, who would ever have imagined that on a July 4th in 2019, there would be a, an ilum of this size and this chashivas coming together at 11.53 in the morning Instead of going to a park or a picnic or, uh, you know, swimming, they're going here to learn Tyra. It's unbelievable. We don't realize it because we're living in history. But from a historical perspective, nobody would have imagined that this scene would be possible. Why is it possible? 
Obviously, Hashkacha deemed it that way, but it didn't happen by itself. It took human intervention. And the seeds for such a, uh, an explosion of Torah that we're enjoying today, that perhaps has never been duplicated in the Gaulists that we're in, to have as many yeshivas. You take a, tonight I have a chasna in Lakewood. Lakewood became an irve, the, the irve in Israel. It used to be like Brooklyn was the main you know, population center in America. It used to be before that the Lower East Side, Williamsburg. Today it's not. Today everybody is migrating to Lakewood. If you don't yourself live there, your children, your grandchildren, or, and you eventually might also live there. It's, it's just, it, it became a, a place of you know, a tremendous makam taira, and that's all uh, a result of the fact that there were G'dayle Eilam that came and established yeshivas and Kailim, mikvais, kashras, Shuls, Chadarim, all of this we'll discuss about now, but we have to understand, we have to have Akar Satayv to our founding fathers in this country. Who were the ones that planted the seeds? Sometimes they weren't fully um, successful, if you could put it that way. They were successful. It just took a little bit longer. We were late bloomers in this country. It wasn't like you planted a seed and poof, all of a sudden, you know, you have tremendous tyro. But people came to these shores planted very important seeds, and it took sometimes 50 to 100, 150 years before the full growth came. But this is exactly what happened. So I, well, I'm going to be leaving people out. So don't start coming to me afterwards. You forgot this person. How could you not include this person? I'm picking my own people, okay? When you want to give a share on America, you, you pick your people, okay? These are the people that I'm picking. Fair enough? Okay, we're getting there. Not b- before of Yaakov Okay, so 1840, which wasn't so long after the founding of the country. The country was founded in, in 1776. 1776 to 1840 is how many years? 64. What? 66 years. 64 years. 64 years is not a lot of time. What happened in the year 1840? In 1840, the first... Musmach, the first real rabbi, ordained rabbi. There were other people that were here before him. But the first ordained rabbi came to these shores. His name was Rabavram Rice. Nobody knows him. He's not a household name. But he was the first real rabbi that came to these shores. And I have a personal connection to him because he came from the city of Würzburg, the city of Würzburg, my great-great-grandfather was the Würzburger Rav. He was Rabbi Yitzhak Dave Halevi Bamberger, uh, the Paisek Hadar pretty much in, in Germany and throughout that part of the world at that time in the 1800s, mid-1800s. He learned by Rabbi Avram Bing, who was the Rav before him in the city of Würzburg in Germany, in Bavaria. And learning with the Würzburger Rav in that same yeshiva was somebody with the name of Rabbi Avram Rice. And he was offered a position to go to America with his wife, and, his, and his, he did not have children. Um, he had an adopted child. But, and they came to America, and they, he became a rub in Baltimore. He's still buried. So he's buried in Baltimore. And, um, and he had a very difficult time here. It was not easy for him at all, because he had a lot of pushback. The reform, especially in Baltimore, was very strong at the time. Every initiative that he tried to do, whether it was, and this is something that we're going to see a lot of, uh, a lot of um, you know, similarities with a lot of people that came here, they had a lot of pushback. It was very difficult with shechita 
and with Safraf and with everything that they really tried to improve in this country, they were met with, with a, lot of, a lot of resistance because everything was set up already you know, a comfortable way with the people that were self-proclaimed leaders. They were not comfortable with having new people come in and change the status quo. He fought very hard. He had a lot of uh, problems dealing even in his own community, in his own shul. The reform sort of uh, kicked him out. Um, a few years later, when he was very sick, he was uh, inv- asked to come back, and he died. And then after he came back, the shul turned reform. It still, it still is around in a certain, uh, in a certain Gilgal. It's not the same exact shul, but it's still in Baltimore. There still is a shul um, that is sort of a, a hemshech of that original shul. Rav Schwab was the rub there, and today Rabbi Yaakov Hopfer is the rub there. But this is a, uh, a very important part of history. He used to write letters to my great-great-grandfather with any shyness that he was too hard for him himself to paskin. My great-grandfather was a Talmud Chavar. They were colleagues, but he was, you know, he deferred to my great-grandfather, and he was, um, you know, so there, were, there, there was correspondence back and forth between Baltimore and Würzburg discussing a lot of different things that were going on with Esraigim and with Shechita. And this is something that he was the first real Rav that came to these states. And again, was he super successful? Can you describe him as being the, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the a person that, that really changed at the time America? No. But he was a person that came and planted seeds that would take time for others to cultivate and to water and to provide sunlight upon so that it would eventually sprout and grow into the beautiful country that we have today. If we fast forward to the year 1888, there was a, a yid by the name of Yaakov Yosef. Jacob Joseph was, who's buried right here, literally seven minutes away. You want to get into your car after Mincha today? You want to, it's, it's Kedai. You find the cemetery, the gravesite of Yaakov Yosef is buried right off of the Jackie in a place called Union Field Cemetery. It's a beautiful, tranquil area. If you ever want to just like, if you have a tzara, Rahman al-Litzlan, you have a, you need a Yeshua, it's, you have to know where to, where to go, but it's a beautiful, serene, quiet, very, uh, tree-lined area, and you could just go there and daven and cry, and no one's gonna hear you, no one's gonna see you. It's a wonderful place to know about, and it's so close to us in Queens, the people flying all over to, you know, to Europe and Eretz Yisrael and to Spain, and to, you could go literally seven minutes away on the Jackie Robinson, and you're there, you could daven to your heart's content by a Tzadik Gomer's grave. Now this Tzad, Pam also, So Rabbi Yaakov Yosef studied in Volozhin under the Nitziv. He was a, a, uh, like a, a leader of the Vilna community. He was a Magid Mesharim in Vilna. And there was a, uh, a feeling in New York at that time that they needed a chief rabbi to sort of connect all of the diverse communities and try to bring them all together, which was an impossible dream. We know that, right? We can't, it's very hard for us to get along in one shul, let alone to combine, you know, all the shuls together. You know, imagine trying to get, uh, Justin Kugarn knows all the shuls to be on the same page. Very hard. Imagine now getting all the shuls in uh, Queens and Brooklyn, and then Queens, Brooklyn, Staten Island, Manhattan. And, you know, Long Island, it's impossible. But this is what they wanted. So they invited him over. There was a, uh, a sort of a contest of who would be invited, and different people tried out, and, 
uh, or either accepted or and wasn't ex- and, and and declined the offer. Anyway, different things happened, but the bottom line is Rabbi Yaakov Yasef was the quote unquote winner. It wasn't really a big win, actually. It was a terrible decision on his part. It was great for us, but it was a terrible decision on his part because he came with all of his ambition to change things. He wanted to make America great again or, or, or keep America you know, from slipping. And he, um, and he again, he tried to, to improve kashras, tried to improve shechita, Everything that he did, the Yiddish press at the time, you know, would accuse him of, of, of trying to make money off of everything because there was like a little plumpo, you know, a little, a little um, stamp that every chicken had. I don't know, they don't have that any, anymore. But in the, I remember growing up as a kid, there was like a little metal clamp in every chicken. A plumba. So, so, they, you know, that, the, so that was to get that plumba on your chicken, you had to spend like an, a half a penny. Say, ah, Rabbi Joseph is making money off of us. It's that, that half a penny is going into his pocket. And he was maligned by the press, and people were like being mevazahim barabim. And eventually, uh, they kicked him out of the position, and he had a stroke from all the tsarists that he had. He was paralyzed the last many years of his life. At the end, Besaif Yamav, they hopped that they had a gadol in their midst, and they gave him the covet achrin that they extended him. His funeral, his last funeral, was attended by thousands of people. There was a lot of commotion at the funeral, as is known, and uh, there were, without going into all the specifics, he, was, he, was, he lived a bitter existence. But he came, he was a real Adam Gadol Adma Aid. The Satma Rebbe said to his, to his Hasidim that you should daven by his kever because the Satma Rebbe said that he was an Ish Kaddish Adma The Satma Rebbe says that about somebody, it's money in the bank. And, and he was. He was a tremendous person, but he was totally underappreciated or unappreciated. And that's, a, that's a, an understatement. But he, he, he suffered a lot, but he also was one of the founding fathers who planted seeds in this country that would eventually grow, not right in, not, not Bechaya, but eventually. It's interesting, in the same year, 1888, another Rabbi Yaakov Yosef came to these shores. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Herman. Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Herman also came, but he was only eight years old. He was eight years old when his family emigrated to, this, to these shores, and he was from the city of Slutsk, and he became the tzaddik of America. If anyone ever, uh, the first great biography, I would say, English biography in America that was really, became popular before Art Scroll biography started coming into vogue, before Art Scroll even existed, I think, was a, a book by the name of um, All for the Boss. All for the Boss is a biography written by Rucham Shane, who was a daughter of Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Herman. And she wrote, it's an absolute masterpiece in terms of describing this tzaddik's life. And it tells of how he grew up in America, in the, in the Lower East Side, and how, um, and, and, and he became actually for a while very successful. He was a furrier, and he was the Machnes Eirach par excellence. He had in his home people that were homeless, people that needed a place to stay, to sleep, to eat, and he would actually go out and find Yidin, and then he had Gedalim in his house, or Baruch Ber, when he came to America, stayed by him, and he fought battles against mixed dancing in shuls, he would make machais, he would go into a shul, if he knew that there was a mixed dancing dinner in a shul, he would go into the shul Shabbos morning, and he would get up on the, on the pulpit, and he would say, 
it's usur midin taira to have mixed dancing. This is not a way. And they thought he was a mashugna. They actually physically picked him up and threw him out of the shul. He would walk on the boardwalk in Coney Island with placards on, placards on his front and on his back saying that Jewish girls should not be going mixed swimming. And of course, none of this made him too popular, but he did have very great success in his Talmidim, people that he inspired to go from America and to go to Europe to learn in the great yeshivas there. His son-in-law was a, a, a future gadol. Anyone know who his son-in-law was? Very good. Reb Chaim Pinchas Scheinberg was, was all for the boss's son-in-law. But he, he sent many people, his own children and many of the Talmudim that would eventually be great leaders in Klal Yisrael, he was the one that started sending them to Europe to get properly trained, to come back to these shores and to establish greatness in this, in this country. It's just interesting. I don't know if anyone's aware of that, that Rabbi Yaakov Yasef, both Rabbi Yaakov Yasefs, Rabbi Yaakov Yasef, Yasef was his last name, and Rabbi Yaakov Yasef Herman came to America in the very same year, in 1888. They didn't probably know each other. He was only an eight-year-old boy when Rabbi Yaakov Yasef was betaikfai, but they're both very pivotal uh, people. In, uh, in, it's interesting, Rabbi Yaakov Yasef used to say, Rabbi Yaakov Yasef Herman, that America's economy thrives why, does, why do we have such... Anyone wonder why America, is, the president, is fond of saying we're the envy of the world? And we are. Our economy is second to none. And it's always been that way. So Rabbi Yaakov Yasef Herman used to say, you know why that is? Because of the penny. He says, we thrive because of our penny. What does that mean? He says, the only place that the government felt that it's necessary to bring emunah and Hashem, bitachin and Hashem, is the United States. In God we trust. The penny is the reason why we thrive financially. Fascinating. Who else has, I don't know, I don't know what other currencies look like around the world, but it might be that we're the only country that we're bold and brave enough to put God on our penny and to write in God we trust. It's like a constant musr say for every penny that the reason why we have Parnassah is because of the Rabbanisham. We think we have Parnassah because we went to this school and because we, uh, we're very bright and we're very uh, good in, in business and finance and, and, and surgeons and, and doctors and lawyers and architects. And no, it's because there's a Rabbanisham in the world. In God we trust. That is the schus that America thrives financially. Therefore, you're not going to <laughs> Okay. This is not a commercial. You don't have to go to Torah. Okay. Let's fast forward to a new wave of G'dayla Yisrael that were actually immediately successful in terms of creating a sea change in America. In the year 1936, who came to America? Ramesha Feinstein. Ramesha Feinstein, because he was under pressure from the Soviet regime, he decided to pick up his family and move to these shores. Amazing move. Without Ramesha, I don't know if we would have what we have today. Ramesha was a world, the world-class Paisek Hadar. He was a Bucky in Kala He was the final word in everything, whether it was in decisions, political decisions, whether it was in halachic decisions, whether it's Hashkafic decisions, Ramesha Feinstein was the first and last address 
that all questions came to in America and around the world. To have a gadol of this weight, of this stature, come to these shores was a game changer in American history. And he started and he established the yeshiva Mesifta Tiferes Yishalayim in the Lower East Side, which still is being run today by his son, Reb David Feinstein Zolgazanzayin, and his, his other son in Staten Island has also a branch of the yeshiva, Reb Reuven Feinstein. He created Talmidim. His son-in-law was uh, an amazing, uh, a huge Talmud Chacham, Reb Meisha Shiskal, who was a rabbi of uh, Rabbi Steinberg. Um, he was uh, in Tarvin, and, and, and so many others, Rivnison Alpert and, uh, and his sons, and, his, and uh, hundreds and hundreds of Talmudim. We don't have time to discuss everybody. But Moshe was really uh, a tremendous force in American uh, Judy, uh, Jewish uh, history. He used to say something very important, Ramesha. He used to say that it's a very strange phenomenon that we find in American Jewish history, and that is that. The, in the early 1900s, maybe the late 1800s, Jews came from all over, let's say Russia, Poland. The first generation Jews were very, very from. If you look at the pictures, you know, many people, you know, you see the old Yidden that came from off the boats past Ellis Island, you know, past the, uh, um, the Statue of Liberty. They had long beards and hats, and they looked like very, very from. Maybe some of our great-grandfathers that came at that, at that period. And then... For some reason, something happened, and their children, their grandchildren, completely went, as we would call it today, OTD, off the derech. If you wonder why all of the universities around the country, I'm not talking about in the tri-state area, talking about in, uh, you know, in Texas and in, in, in California, Wisconsin, Utah, all these, you go there, it's mamish, it's many, many dozens, hundreds, thousands sometimes of Jews that have absolutely zero affiliation with Yiddishkeit, zero shaykh with Yiddishkeit. How did that happen? Their grandfathers were the guys with the long beards that came off, off the boat, and then something happened that their fathers and, their, and themselves and you know, maybe their grandfathers, they, they completely lost shaykh to Yiddishkeit. What happened? So Ramesha had like, almost like a mantra. He used to say this all the time. And he would say it, and if you look in his Sefer Darash Meisha on, on Chumash, he really sort of like, weaves this, this Yisait into many different psukim and chumash. But he says it's one reason. This was his hypothesis, this is his theory, and Ramesha's hypothesis is Taramisinai. He says there's one thing that the first generation, that first wave, that meant well. They came, they wanted you know, to practice their Yiddishkeit, and they did at Great Messiris Nefesh, by the way. They, they had to very often, in order to keep Shabbos, they would get a job on Sunday or Monday, and then Friday tell their boss that they were Sabbath observant, and they would say, of course, you know, thank you very much for your week uh, of, of work, here's your pay, and you know, good luck finding a job next week. They would get a pink slip, and that was it. So they had tremendous misery, we can't fault them. I mean, who knows what we would do in that situation. You have a family that needs parnasso, what do you, you know, you need to put bread on the, on the table. Today we are blessed with all types of laws that protect such a religious rights and freedoms, but, you know, back then they didn't have laws like that, and, and who knows what we would have done. So, the first generation, we're not at all, in any way, putting down. We don't have the right to do that. But Ramesh used to say that they did everything right except one thing. Their attitude was, they used to say, 
as is schwer zu sein Eid. It's very difficult to be Jewish. It is very difficult to be Jewish. Uh, maybe today not, but then it was. But the message that their children heard at the Shabbos table and at the nightly dinner table and when they were taking a walk in the street, to hear this constantly, that it's difficult to be a Jew, you know what the, the message that was reverberating in the child's mind is? Listen, <laughs> maybe for that generation, the old-timers, they're keeping some they're keeping you know, Shabbos and Yantif and Kashrus because they have to. You know, they have that pressure from their parents. But we're living in the land now of Coca-Cola and drive-in movies. Well, we don't need this. We need this. We need to have a difficult time being Jewish. We want to enjoy life. We want roller skating, and we want, we want uh, you know, diners, and we want to have fun, and we want to go uh, to the beach. We don't, want it. we don't want this. Because they heard this constant, this constant statement, as a schwerzer sein, it's so difficult to be Jewish, it, it really created in the child's mind a disinterest in Yiddishkeit. And Ramesh used to say, if we want to keep our children in the fold, we have to say, as is geschmack zu sein Yid. It's beautiful to be Jew. It's a wonderful thing. If we can convey that to our children, to our grandchildren, and to really send that message home that it's not bad to be Jewish, it's not, a, it's not an oil, it's not a yoke on our backs, it's a, it's a, it's, chus, it's beautiful, it's, it's wonderful. Yantav is, is great. Shabbos is, is, is amazing. What will we do without Shabbos? Kashrus is, uh, you know, the food is, is delicious. We have Baruch Hashem Bakal Mikol Kol. We have to. This is the attitude that Ramesha says is what did in millions of Jews a bloodless revolution by the Eight Sahara, planting these seeds in the next generation's minds that it's bad, it's difficult to be Jewish, even though it, it, it was. They weren't just I'm saying they felt it because it was. But you shouldn't say it, even if you feel it. Don't say it. In 1941, Rivarin Cutler comes to America. Rivarin Cutler had a choice to make. He, he escaped the war miraculously. Rachman Lutzan, his yeshiva and Kletzk did not, um, did not uh, survive, most of them, but, but Rivarin was able somehow to get out of Russia. It was a tremendous, also Nisan. Rivarin Cutler was the genius of the European. Yeshiva world. Everybody knew Rav Aaron Kotler met as a young child already. Um, he was the apple, you know, of the altar from Slabatka's eye. He met Rav Chaim Brisker. Rav Chaim Brisker said that half the yeshiva world, half the terror world will someday ride on this young man's shoulders. So he was already known that he was going to be the God Ladar. It was, it was clear for everyone to see. He had a choice to make in 1941. Two countries were on the table for where he should emigrate to. Eretz Yisrael or America. The obvious choice would have been Eretz Yisrael. His wife, father, anyone know who his wife's father was? Rebissar Zalman you're a very, very good crowd here. Rebissar Zalman Meltzer. Rebissar Zalman Meltzer was the, the Gadladar as well. And he was living in Eretz Yisrael at this point. He was in, he had a yeshiva called Eitz Chaim. He was happy to give over the keys to his yeshiva to Rav Aaron Kotler. 
So that would be the easy choice. His wife would have been happy, and he would have been happy. He could have learned in Eretz Yisrael, Bedusha Vatara. America, even then, in the 1940s, was still a midbar in Tyra. It was still a, it was a desert. It was a, a wilderness of Tyra. There was nothing really here. Ramesha was here and, and, and others, but there, it was not really, it wasn't Eretz Yisrael in any which way. What did Rav Aaron Cutler do? He made a Geir Hagra. A Gairla Gra is, it's sort of, did anyone play Chumash baseball when they were kids? Okay, so it's sort of Lahavda like something like that. You have to open up a, a, a Tanakh, a certain type of Tanakh, not just any Tanakh. And there's a certain Messiah, whatever it is, you open it up random and you turn a certain number of pages and back and forth and, you know, and you count a certain number of lines from that, the top of the page. There's a whole system. And there are many times throughout history that this was employed, uh, which again, we, we don't have time to discuss today, it's a sheer in and of itself, but the Geir Lagra that Rav Aaron Kotler did to determine what decision to make, every time you have a big decision, a major decision, not, you know, should I have chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream, it's not, it's not a good time to use the Geir Lagra, but if you want to make a really major decision like Rav Aaron Kotler had before him, he chose to use the Geir Lagra. So he did this. And the Pasuk that he landed on was, listen to this Pasuk. He couldn't, I couldn't write a better fictional story. Truth is stranger than fiction. This is what the Pasuk that came. Vayoymer Hashem el Aaron. Hashem said to Aaron, Lech Likras Moshe HaMidbar. Go and greet Moshe in the Midbar. So you don't have to be a great Mekobol to figure out what the Pasuk was trying to say. Hashem was saying to Aaron Kotler, go out and greet Moshe Feinstein in the Midbar, which everyone referred to America at the time was. Rav Aaron Kotler, doing this guy la grub, but also something else that people don't know. Besides for the fact that Rav Aaron Kotler had this guy la grub in his pocket, he also had something else in his pocket, something that I mentioned before. What was that? He had the Kabbalah from who? Reb Chaim Velazhner. Reb Chaim Velazhner taught Klal Yisrael, and, and Reb Aaron was really a, a mamshech of that Messiah of Reb Chaim Velazhner, that the last station of Taira and Golis is going to be America. He knew that this was very um, fertile soil to till on. He knew that America was not just any, you know, country in the history of Klal Yisrael, it was a major country that was going to represent the final stand of this Golos. So having these two, these two understandings, the Gaila Grub plus the Messiah of Chaim Lajner, Rav Aaron Kotler set sail for America in 1941. He lands on the shores of San Francisco, that's where his boat went to. He gets off, and already the first speech, there was a, a group being macabre upon him. He, they knew that the Galadar just landed in America, and he gave a speech to them, and he said that we're going to change America. And he says that we're going, but the first order of business is we have to set up yeshivas, and also we have to rescue as many Jews as we can from Europe. And so he set up the Vat Hatzala to really save whatever he could of, of the Bnei Taira and the Frumayidin, whoever he could, as many as he could save, he tried to save, and he would go 
on Shabbos. He would go and take trains on Shabbos to find a meeting with a senator in, 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 in Congress who, was, uh, who happened to be there on a Saturday. He would do anything and everything to do whatever he could to save the Yidden that were still in war-torn Europe. But then, of course, of Aaron Cutler, after the war was over and he did all that he could, he rolled up his sleeves and he fully engaged in planting and building Tyre in America. His vision was different than the zeitgeist, than the spirit of the times in America. At the time, everybody, even the Fruma Jews in America, felt that it was very important to be a well-rounded Jew. And you might agree with that, you might disagree with that, but that was the, that was the, that was the spirit of the times. You had to go to college. Every parent in America demanded of their children, you want to learn base medrash and yeshiva, fine, but you must go to college. You have to. Once you go to college, we'll talk about it later, but you have to go to college. That's, the, that's, the, the, that, that's a prerequisite. Ravarin came and says no. Ravarin says in Europe there was no college. America is no different. America we're going to establish in this country a reina vinkel of Tyra, which means a pure corner of Tyra. I'm going to establish in the city of Lakewood a base medrash that we're learning purely Tyra. There's no other, it's not Tyra and, it's Tyra only. And at the time it was highly unpopular. It was very hard to get a minion of people that were willing to go. And if they wanted to go, their parents certainly didn't want them. But eventually that changed. The big Rosh Hashivas in America understood Rav Aaron was a God They sent him the best of their Talmidim, which isn't easy to do. Rav Hutner sent a wave of Talmidim to Rav Aaron Kotler, and Rav Adas, Rosh Yeshiva, sent their Talmidim there. The Mir Yeshiva, every Yeshiva was sending their Talmidim to Rav Aaron, and they became the next generation of G'dayli Yisrael. And this is what, and today Lakewood is, like I said before, is a, it's an Irvain Yisrael. It used to be a small, little, hole-in-the-wall city. Today, it has, you know, the greatest shopping. If your wives want to go shopping, they go to Lakewood. No taxes, on no, no sales tax, and you have every store imaginable, every restaurant imaginable. Yeshivas galore, Kailam galore, Beis Yaakov's galore, social halls galore, people, you know, chasnas are all made today in Lakewood. I tell my to me, do not make your chasna in Lakewood. I, 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 I can't promise that I'll come there. It's easier for me to go to Chicago than Lakewood. I say, if you want to get married, get married in Chicago. It's easier for me to jump on a plane than to drive to Lakewood. But... Lakewood is Lakewood. Lakewood today is the epicenter of Tyre in the world. That's all of Aaron Cutler's uh, doings. It's interesting to note also, and I must make mention, of course, of other great notables that made a profound impact. I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but I, I should. Uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, and the current and, and, and the and and the and and, the, and, and, and Menachem Mendel uh, Schneerson, what they did in America and every city in this country and throughout the world, for that matter, you cannot, you know, you 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 just have to take your hat off to these people because they really created, uh, you know, a place that that from sea to shining sea is has has a muckum. You can get a minion together, kosher food, uh, you know, a tremendous outreach that they do. Um, the uh, Rav Salvechik from Yeshiva University, the, the impact that he had on his Talmidim and beyond, also incredible, incredible. You have to make mention of him as a founding father. It's also fascinating to know that on these shores of America, giants roamed. And what I mean to say by that is that people that you never even would imagine stepped on American soil actually did. 
Did you know that Mayor Shapiro, the founder of Dafyaimi and the Rashiva of Yeshivas Chachmi Lublin, he, was, he came to America several times on fundraising uh, missions. He came to America and he made a very big impact on young people in this country. Uh, Mike Tress, who also deserves to be spoken about, and, and Ramesha Sharer, who also deserves uh, tremendous praise. Rev. Ruderman. Uh, Ruderman's brother-in-law by Herman Neuberger, what he did for establishing Ner Yisrael into the superpower yeshiva that it became, Rav Hutner and uh, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. I mean, these are, we, we, could, we could really spend, should we spend the whole day on this, actually? We could, I know we have another share coming up, but we really could spend the whole day discussing in great detail the great G'daylam, but the people that you might not know were here, Rav Baruch Ber, um, uh, amazing people, if you go to the home of Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, there's a chair in his living room. It's a, it's a nice chair. It's like a big dining room chair from back in the olden days, the way it looks. And, and it's a very famous chair. I wrote a book called Great Jewish Treasures for Art School, and it's about artifacts of G'dayli Yisrael. And this chair is in there. What's so special about this chair? There was a woman that lived in Philadelphia, not far from Rav Shmuel. She was a widow whose husband was very wealthy. He died, and she had a lot of money. She lived in a mansion in a part of Philadelphia called Strawberry Mansion, I think it's called. And she sent every Resh Chaydesh, or Shmuel told me the whole, all the details, every Resh Chaydesh she sent to all the great yeshivas throughout Europe, $50 checks, which was today, you know, that's not a bad donation if a guy comes to your door, but, you know, you're not going to make him, you know, into the philanthropist of the year. But $50 back then was literally like sending, I don't know, $10,000 maybe today, maybe I'm wrong, but it was a lot of money in the early, in the early 1900s. And she sent it out to like 50 yeshivas every month, every Rish Chaydish. And when these G'daylam, when the heads of these yeshivas came to America, they came, they made a special trip to Philadelphia to be makir taif to this woman, to this widow. And when they came to her home, and this is including the, the you know, uh, the, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Reb Baruch Ber, Reb Shimon Shkop, uh, Reb Meir Shapiro, all these people came to Philadelphia. It wasn't easy to get there. You didn't jump on a train then. It was difficult to get there. And when they came there, she gave them this seat. This was the chair of G'daylam. No one sat on this seat unless you were like a bona fide God will be Israel. And when she eventually moved out of Philadelphia um, to Atlantic City, where she retired, for Shalach Manish, she sent one Purim to Reb Shmuel, that chair. And that chair still sits in Reb Shmuel Kamenetsky's house. It's because she was very close with his Rebetzin, and they were very close to her. And, uh, but it's just fascinating how many people walk the shores of America. You wouldn't think there are Meir Shapiro in America. It sounds like shotness. You know, Meir Shapiro, how does a Meir Shapiro come to America? Or Baruch Be'er, Rebbe Khan and Vassim, and these are giants beyond giants, and they, they were actually in America. I just want to conclude that we live in this Malchus Shel Chesed, and on July 4th we should appreciate the, the government the president, the government, the Congress, it's not always perfect. It's a democracy, and we don't always love all the policies, but we have to respect the country that we live in. And the most important way to respect the country is you don't have to necessarily wave a flag and go to a, you know, go to a parade today, but you have to tell over to your family how loyal we are to this country, how fortunate we are that we have such a country to live in. In Europe, you can't wear your yarmulkes on the street. 
I don't think any of us, you know, question when we go out to work, should we wear a yarmulke or, a, or should we not? Do we wear a tzitzit or are we afraid that somebody's going to, you know, there are times that it's dangerous, there are neighborhoods in, in, in New York that it's dangerous to do, but the vast majority of Yidden in New York, in New Jersey, Connecticut, and, and beyond, in California, and in Miami, you know, we walk around and we, like we own the place. But we have to have tremendous hakara sataiv that we're here and that we, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, blessed this country for us. It's Bishvil Torah and Bishvil Yisrael. It's all for us. It's a, it's a Gaishen that HaKadosh Baruch Hu arranged already in 1492 so that we should have a Makkahim that we should be, Lepleta Gedayla, we should be able to have refuge and safety in. And we have to behave appropriately in this country. There's a Dina Demachus Adina. We have to act properly. We have to pay our taxes properly. We have to be ethical. We have to be always making Kiddush Hashem. We don't want Rahman Litzlan that the fate of other countries and other Gullison should ever Rahman Litzlan befall us. And we have to always act as good citizens and proper citizens, always displaying nothing but loyalty and love for the country that has been so hospitable to us.